When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. I teach linguistics at Columbia University. And after two interview episodes this week, I am going solo again. And I'm going to do a subject a lot of you have requested, the verb to be. It's a neat topic. And yet, it's one of those topics that almost never gets beyond the bounds of unreadable journals and textbooks. And solving that problem is one of the main things that this podcast is for. And so let's go. Now, one thing about this episode, I try to avoid dwelling too much in foreign languages, because I've learned, especially over the past four or five years from my books, that readers, even readers who like languages, get weary if you dwell too much on especially languages beyond roughly French, Spanish, and German. And I can completely understand that. But here, if we're going to talk to be, to really understand it, we have to address the world to an extent. So got to do a little foreign. I'm going to need to do a little old English, which might as well be German. I'll do my best to keep all of it as alive as I can. But especially for the first about 10 minutes, we're going to have to travel a little bit. The first thing that we might want to know about the verb to be from the perspective of English is how unnecessary it is. It's really quite an accident. A cute title for this whole episode, hint, 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 Mike Volo, might be The Incredible Lightness of Being. And that's because, really, if you're talking about a bread and butter sentence like, I am your sister, where the verb to be is to indicate the equivalence between two things, between a subject and a predicate, then really it's very common for a language not to have any word for that and just to leave it to implication. It's about 40% of languages that just do without it. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. If you say, I, your brother, well, what does it mean that I eat your brother, that I convince your brother, that I jump rope with your brother? I mean, you almost know that it's going to mean I am your brother if you juxtapose them. It's kind of a default relationship. And so a language really doesn't need to have a be verb like that at all. So, for example, let's take something very basic. Let's use, say, the movie The Ten Commandments. This is 1956. And listen to the way a certain someone outlines who they are. I am. I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
Now, in English, for it to be I am your God sounds so natural. Of course, there's going to be an am in there. But, you know, we can be pretty sure that that entity, if they were speaking a language, it was not English because English wouldn't have existed when those events are supposed to have taken place. In terms of the original rendition, it was in biblical Hebrew. And in biblical Hebrew, I is Anochi. And then the Lord, your God, is, we'll call it Adonai Elohecha. In the Hebrew Bible, that I am your God is Anochi Adonai Elohecha. Notice that I'm not putting in anything that would be the equivalent of the B verb. You really don't need it. That is the way biblical Hebrew was. Talk about something like our jolly expression today, you to man. And there's no verb to be in there, and we find that kind of tangy. Well, go to 2 Samuel 12, 7, and the way that was rendered is ata haish. Ha is not to be. Ha is the. So haish, the man, ata is you, ata haish. It's not ata ar haish or anything equivalent. That's just the way it went. People walked around speaking biblical Hebrew and considered themselves with all justification is quite sophisticated. They didn't have a verb to be because they were just a normal language, of course. If they wanted to be explicit, they had it. But in an ordinary bread and butter present tense sentence, it was just you to man. And that is very common worldwide. To be a linguist and to approach a language that's unknown is to almost expect that that's the way it's going to be. For me, that's default. And then if there's going to be some kind of verb to be, that's a frill. The European situation is by no means what you would call the world's norm. And to really help you get that, I want you to listen to a language that is perhaps more familiar to most of us than biblical Hebrew. And that's Russian, because Russian is one of those languages where you just say, I, your sister, rather than I am your sister. I want you to hear real living people not using a verb to be in that way in what's considered high language. Black English won't help us here. I want you to hear how this is very much a linguistic universal. So, for example, this is... Yes, I've got to make you listen to some Russian, even though I know that most of you don't know Russian. This is actual Russian human beings performing Chekhov's The Cherry Orchard. And they're doing it in Russian, which is their language. Now, here is one scene where Trofimov is objecting that somebody is a petty rascal. And what he says is, Now, if you don't know Russian, that sounds like Russian. But basically, on is he is petty rascal. There's no to be. Listen to somebody who's not me doing a bad imitation, actually doing this. This is formal. He's wearing a little suit. Here we go. He's he's a non-entity. So no verb to be. This wasn't idiomatic. He wasn't striking a you demand kind of note because he's talking to a very formal kind of woman. She is a person of the stage. And she says, you, you're still a college student of the second class. And what she says is, we, you, and then still, and so you, still, College student of the second class, listen to her saying it. You, so you show gymnasist второго класса. You, still college student of the second class. 
They don't have a verb to be there. Now, Russians, I know, you do have a verb to be if you want to be explicit. You use yes. And of course, in the past, you have to use to be with bl. I understand that. And I've noticed that many Russians, when this comes up, because to be a normal Indo-European language in particular is to actually have a verb to be there. Many Russians seem to think that I'm somehow putting the language down. And no, I don't mean that at all. Languages lose their verbs to be for various reasons. Russian happens to be one of them. So I know there is a verb to be, but the point is that you only use it in the present tense for emphasis. You can say, I, your sister, and that is perfectly elegant Russian. So it's one of those languages, which leads to the question, why does a language develop? The expression of something that is unnecessary. If Chekhov didn't need it, then how come we do? The answer is, as so often with how languages go, accident, jolly, fascinating, tenured professor creating accident. So, for example, let's use Hebrew again. At a stage of Hebrew, you would say, as you would today, he is a thief. And the way you would say it is, who ganav. So, who is he? Ganav is thief. There's no to be. By the way, to me, languages have voices. And I openly admit to me, Hebrew has a deep voice simply because the first person I heard speak Israeli Hebrew happened to have a deep voice. And so that's why I'm using that voice. To me, to refer to the past episode, I still haven't seen Wonder Woman, but I imagine Gal Gadot having a deep voice, just like Yael Grobglass on Jane the Virgin has something of a deep voice. So who Ganav? Now, if you're speaking language normally, you might have occasion to say not only he's a thief, but you might say, pick a name, Caleb. Caleb, he's a thief. That's ordinary language in any language you can put something that way. Caleb, he's a thief. Well, in Hebrew, you could put it as Caleb, who gone of? Okay. But if you say Caleb, who gone of? Again and again, then while at first, what it means is Caleb, he, thief. Caleb, who gone of? From our English years, it sounds like you're saying Caleb is a thief, and the who, instead of meaning he, means is. So, Caleb, who gone off, went from meaning Caleb, he, thief, to Caleb is a thief. And pretty soon, you had a new way of being a to be in Hebrew, which is the who. So today, the who can mean he, but also it can mean just is. And we know that it means is, because now you can say I, who gone off. Now, it wouldn't make any sense if who still meant he in a sentence like that. You wouldn't say, I, he, a thief. But I today is ani, and so ani huganav. I am a thief. So that's how it happened. You can see how who got caught between the subject and the predicate, kind of like something gets caught in your teeth. Verbs to be really are very often like chunks of meat that get caught between your teeth. It happens a little more as you get a little older because of slight gum recession. That is what verbs to be actually are. And it doesn't have to be a little pronoun. Often it's the word for that or it's the word for this. That's what happened in Mandarin Chinese. Or it can be the word to be getting caught in there. And next thing you know, you're a language like English where we as natives can't imagine doing without it. Now, the verb to be, is it always irregular, as one of you asked me? And the answer is pretty much yes. If we're talking about a language where there's a such thing as an irregular verb, which is not all languages, but if it's the kind of language that most of us are used to, yeah, then the verb to be tends to be a complexity hotspot. 
because anything that you use that much gets distorted and worn down. It's like shoes. If there's a pair of shoes that you wear most days, then if somebody killed you, a forensics expert could figure out how often you walked on one leg versus another and little eccentricities of the terrain that you inhabited by the way your shoes were worn down. Whereas those shoes that you only wear for a wedding or a job interview, you couldn't learn much about yourself. They're not irregular, so to speak. Slightly strained analogy, but you know what I mean. In any case, for example, the verb to be in English, think about it. And it's one of those things like having a tongue in your mouth that you don't think about, but how deliriously irregular that verb is. So am, are, but then been, and then was. Are those really all pieces of the same thing? And the answer is no. Actually, all of those irregular forms, I am, you are, he is, we were, all of that, it's a car crash. It's a whole bunch of what used to be separate verbs, which in modern English would roughly come out as are, was, and be. It came together and created this magnificent casserole mess. And what it means is that it's English's only really scary verb. If we're trying to learn some European language from English, you know, we wonder what is going on with something like tener, to have in Spanish. And so yo tengo, what's the G? Well, you don't have time to think about it because el he tiene. So a little E gets stuck in there. And then the yo, yo tuve, I had. Why? And you ask anybody why? It's like asking why the sky is blue. It's, it's just kind of there. We only have one of those. I'm, I'm almost proud of it. It's the one that we have. We can effortlessly use a verb that is as maddeningly irregular as the ones that torture us in school. So, for example, this is Sidney Chaplin. This is Charlie Chaplin's son. For some reason, I mean, I, he was handsome and apparently he must have had some sort of magic charisma. For some reason, Sidney Chaplin was in various top drawer Broadway shows in the late 50s and early 60s, even though he wasn't much of a singer. Here's an example of him not being much of a singer in Funny Girl in 1964. I only play you this song and only this part of it to show you how natural it is in English to use these irregular forms. Here he is doing the am, the are, and the is all within practically one breath. And nobody would even bat an eye. You are woman. I am man. You are smaller, so I can be taller than. You are softer to the touch. It's a feeling I like feeling very much. So it's perfectly normal. And there used to be another form in this wreck. Basically, the, the claws of death have taken one of the cars out of the crash. But there used to be Sind, which is still in German with forms like Zint. It's really, it's an interesting thing. And these verbs to be are often complicated in ways that you wouldn't expect. Probably from English, the one that we're most familiar with these days is in Spanish, where you have this difference between the permanent verb to be and the temporary one. And so, yo soy tu padre, I am your father. But if you're happy, it's yo estoy feliz. I am happy temporarily and you just have to deal with it. It's interesting. Go to other languages and that sort of thing gets even worse. And so in Yoruba, which is spoken in 
Nigeria. Not only do you have that Spanish kind of difference, but then you have another verb to be if you emphasize. So if you say, he is your father, darn it. Well, that's another kind of verb to be. Then if you say, it's like that, or it's fluffy, you're characterizing something, then there's a different verb to be. And then if you're angry and you say, you are lazy. Well, the anger means that you have a whole different verb to be. And once again, talk to your Nigerian friend if you have one, if they speak Yoruba. They almost certainly speak Yoruba or Igbo if you're meeting them in the United States. And mention that they actually have a half dozen verbs to be. They likely have never thought about it, just like we don't think about am, are, is. Language is a marvelous thing. Usually in the world, what you find is at least a difference between being and being in a place. So there's a difference between I am your father and I'm in the chair. For a language like English to have the be in both of those situations is actually kind of odd and dull. Those of you who know Chinese or Japanese will be familiar with the fact that in those languages, if you're going to think about being, you have to think about the difference between being being and location. And it's interesting, even in English, we're trying to have that difference in the difference between, for example, what is that and where is that at? We think of the at as colloquial, but it's because we're trying to indicate location in that beingness the way lots of languages do. It, we're trying to make ourselves normal the way we used to be. Earlier English was that you would say, where is it? But then you would say, whither are you going? And that was your where to. And then whence are you was where are you from? So you had where, if you're just sitting in place, and whither to and whence from. Well, whither and whence are now gone. And so we say, where are you from? For whither, we can say, where are you going to? You know, going to that song. And you might think of going to as a little colloquial, but just a little. You have groceries to buy. Nobody gets smacked on the back of the head for where are you going to? But if you have where are you from and where are you going to, then to make it tidier, to make it into a nice pattern, to make English cleaner, you naturally want to say, well, then where are you at? Where are you at? Where are you to? Where are you from? But because we have these blackboard grammar rules, we're not allowed to say where are you at, except in the privacy of our own homes, drinking Budweiser. Or, uh, yes, I have moved to the IPA like everybody else. But, for example, whence, it's interesting listening to people using it sometimes today. We just can't process it the way we used to. We're not used to having a whither and a whence. And so we'll say, you know, from whence, which technically is redundant in the way that we feel where at as being. So take back your mink to from whence it came and tell them to Hollanderize it for some other day. Because be verbs are so complicated. It is perfectly natural, it's something you always find, that people are trying to make it easier. It's one of those things. Language is a push-pull between trying to make things easier and grappling successfully with the fact that the language is always becoming harder in the background. And so, 
with this simplification that's always been happening in English. So in Old English, there were two ways of expressing Venus. There was very permanent, ooh, Venus doesn't sound good, um, beatitude. No, nope, but that's ambiguous. Expressing verb to be. And so, for example, you had a very permanent kind of being. And then you had a vanilla kind of being, and you had to distinguish. For me, if Hebrew has a deep voice, Old English always sounds kind of beleaguered. I feel like in Old English, everybody was dreading the Battle of Hastings. So in classes, I always use this voice for Old English. So if you wanted to say, I am God, something very permanent, then it's, Ich bin God. Bell. So that's, and you know, that became B. But then if you wanted to say something less permanent, such as, I am beset by flames, I'm flame beset, then you didn't use bail, you used elm. And so I am flame beset, which hopefully is only temporarily, you would say, ich elm lick busig. And there's a little echo of that in surviving phrases like the powers that be that we use, that kind of permanent thunder from the sky kind of being. Or we have all but gotten rid of our subjunctive in terms of to be. So, for example, let's do the Ten Commandments again. Here is the golden calf scene and listen to the way be is used. And they bore him upon their shoulders and rejoiced saying, this be our God, O Israel. Are you mourners of... So this be our God, O Israel. That's the old subjunctive. And so may it be. It's not just archaic. It's that we used to have a subjunctive just as quirky and annoying as the ones that bedevil us in other European languages. But that was one of the things that English has let go as part of its simplification. This Ten Commandments thing is actually for a reason. I am on sabbatical for a year and I've decided that I'm going to do four things and they come out to an acronym. Mm. And the mm is Mandarin, Muscles, Music, and Movies. So I've been watching two movies a week and you know I had never actually seen the Ten Commandments until a couple of weeks ago and I finally decided to sit through it and <laughs> damn. Also there's the negative B. And you get all sorts of complication there. For example, one thing that might come to mind is, is you is or is you ain't my baby? Nobody actually said that in any kind of colloquial English. But here's that wonderful tune. I'm going to ask is you is or is you ain't my baby? The way you acting lately makes me down. Many of you will recognize that from the Tom and Jerry cartoon Solid Serenade of 1946. I know I should play Lewis Jordan's version, but let's face it, most of us became familiar with that song from that cartoon. And incidentally, the singer there was Buck Woods. It was not Lewis Jordan. Negative bees can get really hairy. And so, for example, there's a part of England called the Black Country. I will probably never go there. I don't know how they sound, so I'm not going to do a cartoonish dialect imitation. But older people there, to say, I'm not your father, the form is bay. I bay your father. That's English, and it means I'm not your father. Even today, you can go there and ask somebody how they're doing. And the set way to answer is petuba, and that's I'm not too bad. Bay is I'm not. And then ba is bad. This is English. So I said that and it sounded like Thai. Be to ba. I'm not too bad. And then if you want to say you aren't my father, it's the bizent 
my father. Can you imagine people saying that in English? Well, in the black country, they can. And get this. They aren't is not they bay. It's not they bisn't. It's they pay. Listen to that sound I made. Pay. That's that sound in between B and V that you're always told to make in Spanish and you don't. There's an English that uses that sound. They pay. They pay your parents. And that is the black country. So that's the sort of thing that people like to try to simplify. It gets to the point where you just want to start smashing things and applying things across the board. There is a cute rendition of this actually in American in a song. And I've always wanted an excuse to play this on the show. And you're going to have to hear it because it delights me to no end. This is the title song from Call Me Mister, a Broadway show from 1946. And listen to how these ain'ts are used. It's a beautiful day, ain't it? So exciting and gay, ain't it? There's a beautiful hue in the beautiful blue. Call me mister, lovely weather we've got, ain't it? Not too cold or too hot, ain't it? There's a beautiful breeze in the beautiful trees. Call me mister, there's a lift. So notice that last ain't it. Not too cold or too hot, ain't it? Nobody would actually say that. In modern British, something like that is actually happening. More and more people are saying with the little chunk in it, as in isn't it? I'm right, in it. You're wrong, in it. I didn't know, in it. That in it is everywhere and it's being used in ways that no grammarian type would consider coherent. But that's because you wish to simplify these things. B really tends to give a lot of headaches and you can see people all over the world letting it get really hard. And then because of the fatigue and because all of us like order and to an extent simplification is order, trying to clean it up. Another thing I know all of you have been waiting for is Hamlet. I know that if I say I'm going to do a show about to be, then I'm supposed to do the soliloquy and have something to say about it. Well, here it comes. To be or not to be? That is the question. Okay, I said it. I am. I am. You are. You are. She is. As of this episode, I have been hosting Lexicon Valley for a whole year. Many of you felt a little thrown by the difference in flavor between Mike and Bob's grand version of the show and mine, especially because somewhere along the line, we never got around to making a formal announcement about it, mainly because, really, the decision wasn't ever made at any one time. But I have been honored that at least some of you out there have been enjoying what I'm trying to do here. Thank you so much for all the mail. You can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash lexiconvalley. This show was edited as ever by Mike Volo. I remain John McWhorter. Are you glad? Is he mad? Are we tired? No, we're not. Are they British? Is she Irish? Is it the end? Yes, it is.